Hey, I'm Claude, some of the pastors here. Welcome to Westlight. We are in part two in the final part of a two-part series called Misunderstood. And uh, we, you know, we had two weeks to kill, so we decided to talk about some things that we feel like have been misunderstood by American Christians in general. Okay, so you might be like, no, I think I got that right. So you're not part of that equation that we're talking about in general. So today we're, um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about a topic that you may have heard before, and maybe you heard some pastor preach about it before, but maybe you haven't really, maybe you haven't gone really deep into this topic to talk about it because it's it's one of those things that's like, do Christians really believe this stuff? You know, that kind of, it's one of those things. And um, before we get started with that, uh, I just want to recap something I talked about last week, which is this: there is a difference between what the Bible reads and what the Bible says. Okay, so you could read it on your own, and you're like, hey, I think this is. Uh, does the Bible say this? You know, you're like, no, that's how it reads. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what it says. And what the Bible says, we talked about, has a word, and the word is theology. Theology is the interpretation of scriptures that reveals to us what the writer of that, you know, whether it's Genesis or Revelation, what that author intended for the audience to understand after reading it. Now, have you, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you wrote something and you, you know, with a pure and good heart, and the recipient of that letter read it and saw it as offensive and like this person's trying to hurt me, right? Like there's something that's lost in translation, right? And that's what the work of theology does is it helps us uncover what the intent of the writer was in the first place. So today we're gonna be talking about this topic called rapture. And let me start off by talking about this thing called rapture anxiety. This is a real thing, by the way. Rapture anxiety, this was actually on CNN.com like in September last year. There was this article on rapture anxiety and I contributed to this and here's that story. In case you know what rapture is, rapture is, uh, if you've ever seen the movies like in the books uh, Left Behind, like one day there's a bunch of people on this earth and the next day they're all like, all the Christians are gone, but everybody else, you know, the heathens, they're still here. And usually when this happens, the way it's depicted is that like your clothes are still here but like the body's not in it, in it, right? And in some stories, they'll even say like, oh, what is that? It's like, oh, that's a tooth filling. Because in their minds, they think like, the part of you that gets raptured is the part that's authentically you. I don't know how they came up with that, okay? But okay, so for the past few years, uh, not the past, but before that, I was a cabin leader at a Christian camp. And one of the things as a cabin leader I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to, you know, mess around with the kids, right? So, I mean, that's like, Part of, the, part of the deal. So we thought it'd be funny because there's this one kid that always came to our cabin late, you know, like be here by eight o'clock and like 8.30 still out, right? So like, you know, it'd be funny. If we like, we just like, you know, it's, it's camp. So we all have our extra clothes. Put your extra clothes on your bed, right? And your socks and put your shoes right there. We'll all go into the bathroom and hide there as that kid comes in and we're like hiding. And then the door opens and he comes in, and this is a Christian camp, right? He comes in, he looks around, and he curses out loud, like, oh, you know, right? He looks around, and we're in there trying to not laugh, like, right? And you can hear him like, come on, guys, this isn't funny. <clears throat> come out where you are, and we're like, we're not coming out. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> but anyways, the long story short is, we had a great time causing rapture anxiety on this kid, and I don't know where he is now, but hopefully he, he still thinks it's funny, right? But rapture anxiety. And if you're like, wait, I'm new to this Christian thing, and what, what you guys really believe this, that one day, like, like, only the Christians get taken away? Can you explain to me how this works? So I'm going to give you a quick diagram of how this works. So 
This is a timeline. We're over here somewhere in history, and that's the future. The Bible, if you read the book of Revelation, when they read it, they interpret it as somewhere in the middle of the future of history. There's a 70-year period called the tribulation. This is basically hell on earth. You know, things are burning, half the water turns to blood, and all that kind of stuff, okay? Things that you saw in probably the book of Exodus, it's happening in real life. This is what, we're not saying this is what we believe, but this is what these people who believe in the rapture believe, okay? Now, let's just say in this story, next slide, we have a Christian and a non-Christian coming through this timeline. At the rapture, the beginning of the seven years, the Christian gets taken away, and the non-Christian has to live through the seven years of tribulation, and at the end of it, Jesus comes back, and at that point, if the seven years hasn't taught you anything, you know, maybe it taught you like, oh, maybe I should have been a Christian, and then Jesus is there to greet you on the other side. Now, this is the most popular view of rapture, okay? Um, there are different versions of this. What we just talked about here is called pre-tribulation, like the church gets taken away before the whole seven-year thing happens. Um, there's another view called post-tribulation where you get taken away at the end. And then there's this thing called mid-tribulation where three and a half years into the tribulation you get taken away. And the order I just presented it, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, is the order in like popularity. Most people who believe in rapture believe in pre-trib, right? And so you're like, wait, so Christians really believe this stuff? And some of you are thinking, yeah, we do, right? I mean, that's what I was taught. This is this what was, has been taught for like 2,000 years of Christianity. And to answer that question, I want to share with you the two main verses that people use in the Bible to prove that this is actually a biblical thing. So let's go. These are two verses, Matthew chapter 24. And Matthew, so there's four gospels, the four biographies of Jesus. Sometimes the authors of these four biographies, they overlap. Like, so Matthew talks about it, and so does Luke. And so this parallel passage is Luke 17, okay? And the second passage is written by Paul the Apostle, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to go over each one, and what I'm trying to do today is, for those of you who have assumed that the rapture is what all Christians believe, I want to share with you that it is not what all Christians believe. And on top of that, it's a fairly new thing. Like, the rapture was not talked about 200 years ago and before that. It's a fairly new idea, new teaching. So let's start with, next slide. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 24. Okay. Now, when you read this, you're going to be like, ah, I'm familiar with that story. So let's take a look. But about, this is Jesus speaking. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? So Jesus has 12 disciples, and they're walking around the temple, okay? And he notices that his disciples are like, wow, look at this building. The tall walls are like, oh my goodness, look at this big brick. That How did they even get the brick up there? This is so amazing. Wow. Now, Jesus, looking at his disciples, his followers, he already knows what's going through their minds. What, he's no what he knows about their disciples is that ever since they were little, they've always admired the big building called the temple. And this temple represented the institution of the temple, okay? And around the time that Jesus was alive, the temple, the institution of the temple was corrupt. Okay, so years and years ago when the first temple was built, that was like wonderful. You know, it was like, it was ordained by God and the people who built it, like, right? It was a beautiful thing. But by the time that Jesus walked this earth, we had somebody like King Herod who decided to build it on his own. And so he poured his own money into it. And there's a lot of priests that were in, you know, they were getting paid under the table, and there's all this corruption that's happening, right? And so at this point, he, like, they know that as little kids growing up, they've been thinking, when I grow up, I want to be at the top of the, the temple system. So 
Imagine if you're like a little kid here today, right? You ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, today, people say they want to be YouTubers. But in my generation, they used to say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a president, or right? They think about an institution, and they think, I want to be at the top of that, or I want to be a part of it. Same thing back then, okay? Back then, they said, when I grow up, I want to be a part of this temple system. Now, Jesus is kind of disheartened because he knows how corrupt the system is. So he says, you know, one day, anything that's corrupt, God's going to tear down. This temple here is also going to be torn down. The system is going to be torn down. And he even uses words like, not one stone will be lifted on another because the system will eventually be torn down. Now, you disciples, if your heart is set on this system, this corrupt system, and you want to be a part of it, and you can't let go of that dream, when God destroys the system, you will also go down with it. So the disciples are like, well, when is this going to happen? And this is where that quote comes from. He says, nobody knows, right, about that out of the day or hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. He's talking about himself. It's like, even I don't know. Only my father, only my dad knows, knows when this is going to happen, right? And then next verse, as it was in the days of Noah. So he's talking about a story from the Old Testament. So it will be at the coming of the son of man. He's talking about himself. So that man is a title that Jesus calls himself the most, right? He's like, oh, just think about that story in Genesis chapter 6. And like, well, what, what about that? What is, Jesus, what does the story of Noah have to do with this whole system thing, the tearing down the temple thing? Next verse. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. So he's saying, I don't know when this is going to happen, guys. Only my father knows. Not even the angels know. But I'll tell you, it'll be like the days of Noah where everybody's just doing their normal everyday stuff. They're eating and drinking and getting married. Like all the normal stuff is going to be happening and then bam, it's going to happen. Yeah. Right? And they didn't expect anything and uh, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so let's review this. And by the way, I'm going to try to talk slower. Somebody told me last week that I talk too fast, so I'll try to slow down. <laughs> okay, and if I start going fast, just do this and I'll slow down for you. Okay, <clears throat> this is what happened. So the question is, would you rather be left behind or taken away? And Jesus says, remember the story of Noah. The flood came, they didn't even know when it was, when it was gonna happen, but when it did, they were all surprised and people were taken away. Who are the people who are taken away in this story? Now, if you grew up studying the rapture thing, that's what the whole story of the Bible is all about, then you would think that the people who got taken away were Noah and his family. They were put into the boat and they traveled to safety, right? But if you read that story carefully, what Jesus just said, by being taken away, they're talking about the people who were swept away by the flood. They were taken away. So in this story, what Jesus is trying to nudge his disciples to think is, you want to be the people that got left behind, right? Like, when we think about rapture, we're like, no, you don't want to be left behind. You want to be one that gets you know, taken away. In this story that Jesus is using, the story of Noah, he says that you want to be the one that gets left behind. And in case you don't understand what he's trying to say, that Jesus is trying to nudge his disciples and saying, the answer is you want to get, you know, he's trying to, or, next verse, this is what he says. There's two men, in case you didn't read the Old Testament, I'll tell you another story. Two men will be in, in the field. One will be taken, the other left. You don't get it? Okay, here's another story. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. 
So Jesus is asking, disciples, next verse, who would you rather be, the one that gets left behind or taken away? And Jesus is nudging disciples, you want to be, you want to be left behind, right? But, but wait a minute, Jesus, like, was he really nudging? Well, this is where the, the, the parallel passage really helps. Let's look at the Luke version of what Jesus just taught. Two women will be grinding uh, grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Right? There's a parallel passage. This is what Jesus was just talking about in the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew, at the end of that, is like, I think Jesus gave enough nudges, period. We're done. Let's talk about the next topic. Luke, however, is like, I don't think my audience is going to get this. So let me keep recording what Jesus says next. Right? So next line. Where, Lord, they ask, get taken away? Where are they going to get taken away to? Jesus' answer? He replied, where there is, dead body, there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Now, in that culture back then, when uh, Roman armies come into a village and pillage the place and they kill all the people, they, they gather all the bodies, they dig a huge ditch, and they toss all the bodies in there. They don't give each human being the dignity of having their own personal burial. And as they do that and they bury it, they put dirt over it, the vultures start flying over it and they land on that land, that, that, that patch of land. So what he's talking about is like, hey, you know, when you, this whole thing happens, when, you know, you get taken away, where do the people get taken away end up? They're like, oh, well, the vultures are. The point here is you don't want to be the one that gets taken away. You want to be the one that gets left behind. <clears throat> Back then when people talked about like, there are two people in the field, one person is taken away. They assumed it was a Roman Empire that came in and took your family away. You wanted to be the one that got left behind in your field, right? So, what is Matthew chapter 24 saying, right? What is it trying to tell us? This is what it's trying to tell us. Matthew 24 and Luke 17 is a warning about letting go of our attachments when the empire begins to crumble. When bad, when, remember, corrupt system, everybody's like, I want to be part of that corrupt system. Jesus says, watch out. One day, those corrupt systems are going to fall apart. And if you put your hopes and dreams and you won't let go of it, you are going to go down with it. So be careful. You don't want to be the one that gets snatched away with the fall of an empire. You want to be the one that separated yourself from the empire so that you're safe and sound. So this is not a verse about rapture because clearly Jesus is not saying that you want to get taken away. He's saying you want to be left behind. Detach yourself from corrupt systems because... It's a, you know, <laughs> you might end up falling with them. So next verse, I mean, next slide. So we talked about the first one, okay? This is the first verse that a lot of people quote when they talk about the rapture. The second one is a more ambiguous. We're going to talk about the next one, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you could probably already guess where I'm going with this sermon, right? Okay, so like whether if we should believe in the rapture or not. Okay, next, let's, let's read it. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is Paul writing a letter to them. And oh, let me set the scene first. Um, so Paul is writing a letter to a church in a place called Thessalonica. And let's just say you're there in Thessalonica and you have a neighbor. And this whole time, you know, you've committed yourself to Jesus and you heard Paul teach you that one day Christ is coming back. So you're like, oh, when is Jesus coming back? You know, like we're being persecuted. Oh, when is he coming back? When is he coming back? And your neighbor, you know, because of persecution is killed. And you're like, oh no, he missed, oh man, Paul, uh, what do I do? Uh, we were waiting for Jesus to come back. We thought we were going to be safe, but here's this guy who died. My neighbor just died. What, what happened? Like, I thought Jesus is coming back soon. This is the letter that he writes in response to that. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet called of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He says, your, your neighbor who died, don't worry, he didn't miss on anything. Because when Jesus comes back a second time, the, the return of Christ, the dead will rise from the grave. So even if they die before the coming of Jesus, they're not going to miss anything. They're going to be reunited with Christ. You're going to see him again. You're going to be fine. Okay? And so you're like, oh, okay, so he didn't miss out on anything, right? Paul's like, that's correct. But I'm still alive. My neighbor died, but I'm still alive. What if I miss the coming of Jesus? Right? Like, he won't miss the coming of Jesus because he'll resurrect. You know, he'll be like, oh, I'm alive again. Jesus must be here. What if I miss Jesus, right? I'm still alive. Is there a sign? Like, is there going to be a big flashing light in the sky that tells me Jesus is coming right now, right? How do we know that, right? Next verse. After that, we who are still alive, that would be me, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It's like, ah, there it is. The verse about rapture. And actually, this would be the post-tribulation version because you're going to meet Jesus at the end of the tribulation when he comes back, right? So is that a verse about rapture, Kotz, right? I know your answer, Kotz. I think you're going to say no, but right. Here, here's a scholar, N.T. Wright. This is what he says about it. He says, these two verses, first, the two verses in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4, have had a huge influence in some circles where the rapture is assumed to be the main Christian hope. Like, yeah, a lot of people use this verse to talk about the rapture. But uh, with people being suddenly snatched out of homes, jobs, cars, and aeroplanes, leaving the rest of humankind suddenly bereft. Like, this is the verse. Like, we can make a whole movie out of this, right? Where people were all driving cars and all of a sudden we're gone and the car starts driving and blows up the gas station, right? Like, this is it. This is the stuff, right? And then he says, no, next part of a quote, he says, to read this passage like that is a mistake. You are completely ignoring the cultural context in which this is written. So here it is. Here's the cultural context. Their meeting with the Lord doesn't mean, in the air, doesn't mean that they, uh, that they will then be staying in midair with them. So, like, when Paul says that we're going to come out of this earth and then we're going to be, ris- we're going to go into the sky and meet Jesus up there, he doesn't mean that literally. He's actually using this cultural thing that people understood back then. Next part. They are like Romans in a colony going out to meet the emperor when he pays them a state visit and then accompanying him back to the city itself. This is what he means. If I was in a village and I find out that my emperor is coming to visit me, we're not going to wait in our bedroom saying like, well, he'll be here any time now. Oh, there he is. I'll just wait for him to come here. He's saying it was customary back then that if a king or a dignitary, somebody important was coming to your town, you and the rest of the town will go out there to usher him back in. So Paul is using that imagery saying when Christ returns, you and I, the people who call ourselves Christians, who worship Jesus as our Lord, we are going to be ready with open arms, right? In other words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is Paul's artistic expression of the unveiling of God's new world. God is going to create something new in this world. And it's going to start with Jesus coming back. And when he comes back, we're not just going to be sitting on our hands thinking like, well, he'll be here anytime soon. No, no, no. He's saying we need to prepare our hearts. We need to do everything we can to bring more heaven on earth. This is our way of saying we welcome you here, Jesus. Welcome back. We've been waiting for you. 
So this is what he's saying. He's using um, cultural terminologies to talk about how we're going to be, we should be ready for the coming of Jesus. Okay, so that's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about. It's not about rapture. It's, it's more about having this welcoming stance of when Jesus comes back. So the question is, how did rapture theory form? Right? Because for, like, like I said, in the first 1800 years of Christianity, people didn't read these verses that way. Right? So this is how it came to be. In about 1820, in a place called Glasgow, Scotland, there was a woman by the name of Margaret MacDonald. And she was at a revival, and she had this vision. She had this dream. And in this vision, she saw all the Christians being lifted out of a church and taken into heaven, right? And nobody, they're like, well, that's so cool. It must mean something. But nobody really took that as, so therefore, that should be the core theology of our lives, right? Until a guy named John Darby, say hello to John. John Darby heard this. He's a pastor. And he said, whoa, this is kind of cool. I need to talk about it more. He brought it over to the United States. He was not a big-time pastor at the time, but he started a new denomination called the Plymouth Brethren Denomination. It was a very small sect in the United States, but that's how it made it over to this country. He happened to have a friend who was a big deal. His name is Dwight L. Moody. Maybe you guys heard of Mr. Moody before. He founded this Bible institute called the Moody Bible Institute. It's founded in Chicago. And he also started this publishing company called Moody Publishing. And so through him, and because Dwight L. Moody was totally convinced about this, he started like paying people money to write books about this. One of those books is called Jesus is Coming, published in 1916, and it became a bestseller at the time. People were reading this up. Like, people loved it. People who had a hard time reading the Bible would read this book, okay? And it talked about the coming of Christ and how there's this rapture thing that's going to take place. And many Christians at the time became very acquainted with this idea of a rapture, right? And coming from the same publishing company, there was a guy named Schofield who wrote a Bible. Well, he he print, published a Bible because Bibles were starting to sell. And it's called the Schofield Reference Bible in 1917. Now, what's interesting about this is the word reference. The word reference means, you know, when you read your Bible, there's like chapter and verse, right? Here's a picture of the Schofield Bible. If you notice, this part right here is the Bible, but at the beginning of almost every paragraph, there's a title. This one says, the deity of Jesus Christ. From verse three, it's his reincarnation work. From verse, you know, here is ministry of John the Baptist. Like, he puts a title, like Bibles before didn't have titles on them, okay? He inserted them, and in one section, the part of Matthew chapter 24 we just talked about, he called it, Jesus predicts the rapture. He put it in there. And the people who didn't know any better would read it and say, the rapture is real. Why? Because it's right there in the Bible. And not only that, okay, if you look at the top part here, oh, no, okay, go back. The top part right here, that's called the introduction, meaning read this before you read the Bible. And down here, and down here, these are notes of Mr. Schofield, okay? And people today, scholars today who study Schofield's work, at the time, this was the only reference Bible, and it was cost about the same amount of money. So if you had to choose between a Bible you have to read on your own and a Bible with notes that help you understand the Bible, which one are you gonna buy? The Schofield Bible was a bestseller at the time. Okay, and not only that, scholars who read this today will say, you know, something's up with Schofield. Like he, he seems really defensive in the way that he writes, like almost like he's trying to start an argument and then defend his position. Like in his notes, he would say like, this scholar is wrong because, and I'm right because. 
right? Like he's trying to convince people that his version of Christianity is the right one and everybody else is a heretic, right? And so from that, this new movement started. It's called the lay theological movement, meaning the teachings of the Bible was not spread through scholars and teachers. It was spread through pop culture. There were songs and hymns that were written at the time that talk about how we get to fly away or how we're going to be taken away and that that's our great hope. And because of this and the songs that we sang, it became almost commonplace to a point where people thought that this was always taught for the past 2,000 years. This is what <coughs> Jesus has been teaching. Problem with that is that there's teachings all over the place and there's no place where everything was in one place, right? So people said, let's take all these teachings about rapture, consolidate it and cement it, and let's start a school based on it. And that school is called the Dallas Theological Institute, now called Theolog Dallas Theological Seminary. And from there, they published even more books by their professors. And that one of the uh, well-known books is the next slide. It's called The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you guys have read this book? Or there's a movie, right, yeah. See, now we're starting to get into territory that some of us are familiar with. Right? Talks about the rapture. Talks about how scary it is and that you want to make sure you're a Christian so that you could be taken away before all that bad stuff happens. And then in the 1990s, again, one of the professors at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary wrote this set of books called their Left Behind series by a guy named Tim LaHaye. How many of you guys have read this book? Yeah, you see, and, or watched the movie, <laughs> right? And this is just to propagate the idea that this rapture thing has always been around. So the rapture is a theory that spread through Western churches, almost exclusively just Western churches and the churches around the world that were influenced by the Western churches via pop culture. This is why it's so important that we understand what songs we're singing and where they're coming from because a lot of times we tend to believe in the songs that we sing more so than the verses we read in the Bible, right? Or it's, it's important what radio stations you listen to or what books you, re you, listen, you read or listen to, depending on if you like to read or listen to your books, and know where they com they're coming from because otherwise you might be swayed in a certain way thinking that that's what the Bible says when it really doesn't. And the rapture is a, a prime example of that. And a lot of people in seminary, like all the professors, are always talking about like, we can't believe that we spent so many years training pastors how to read the Bible, and now it's being taught from the pulpit of this whole rapture thing, right? It's like, and if you go to the Catholic church, they don't talk about it. If you go to the Orthodox church, they don't know anything about this either. They're like, where did you get this idea from? And the Protestant Americans are like, well, it's in the Bible. Uh, okay, now, at this point, you're like, Kotz, I think you're being a little harsh, and I, I agree. I might be a little harsh here. Because, look, if they wanna believe in that, why don't you just let them believe that stuff? And I'm not, I'm not on a crusade to change everybody's mind. That's not my point here. You might be asking, well, what is the big deal? Like, what's the big deal? Like, can't you just let them, like, even in Westlight, can't you just let the people at Westlight just say, if you wanna believe in the rapture, you can believe in the rapture. And you know what? You're free to believe whatever you want. I'm not here to say you're out if you don't believe in this stuff. But I do want to share with you some warnings, okay? There's this thought, this is a Greek word called teleos. Teleos means end goal. Okay, like for example, some of you guys, like if, if my son says, Daddy, I believe that, um, I don't know, uh, gummy bears that's in the shape of an orange is actually a fruit, right? Like, it's like, God, what's the big deal? Like, if he wants to believe that, let him believe that. Like, he believes in the tooth fairy. What's the big deal if he believes in the tooth fairy? Like, just let him believe it, right? I have no problem with that, you know, right? But 
That's because that's just one belief that's like separated from everything else in your life. If your end goal is affected, that is important that we address it. And here, here's why. Teleos is basically saying, if my goal is over there, I need to redirect my life to face that direction. And so everything I do from now until then is going to be in that direction. Teleos is very important. Whatever your goal is, is going to affect the way you live your life today, right? So I'm going to share with you three things that will, three effects in your life if you think that rapture is the ultimate goal or the ultimate hope of Christianity. Number one, escapism. If you believe that the point of Christianity is to escape suffering, there's some really bad implications that come with that, right? If your ultimate hope is in getting out, like, hey, God's going to rain some sulfur on this land. God, take me away first, right? All of a sudden, the other things that Jesus talked about doesn't matter anymore, right? All that, like, for example, if there's a big war that's happening, and you're like, is this going to lead to World War III? In your mind, if you believe in the rapture, you're thinking, well, it doesn't matter to me because before this whole world turns to junk, I'm going to be taken away. Like, you create this distance between you and the world that you're supposed to be loving, right? There's racism in this world. Well, it doesn't matter because I'm not going to be a part of this world that much longer, right? Or, or sexism or, or LGBT or, or hunger, like this world hunger. Yeah, but you know what? All that matters is that you're the part of the group that gets taken out. Taking care of justice on this earth means very little all of a sudden when you're thinking that my ultimate goal is to escape. Do you understand where, where, where this is going, right? Slavery in this world. You know what? I would try to rescue that person from slavery, but I'm not going to. Most important thing is that that slave gets taken away also, so I'm going to do whatever I can, not to end slavery, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that that person prays a secret prayer or whatever prayer it is to make sure that that person gets taken away before the world turns bad. The problem with this mindset is that Jesus didn't teach this. Jesus talked about how he cares about how we treat our neighbors, right? He talked about how the injustices of this world cannot stand and you know, if you notice, by the way, a lot of times when Jesus talks about how to fix this world, he doesn't talk about just wait a few more days before you go to heaven. Everything's going to be fine then. He never says that. He always says, this is how you treat your neighbor today. This is good news now, right? Escapism puts your hope in the future, not today. We're assuming that God can't work today because his plan for us is sometime in the future. Escapism totally changes what Christianity means. And in a way, it ignores most of the teachings of Jesus. So that's the first implication of putting our hope in rapture theology. Okay, next. It leads us to redefine love. Jesus teaches us how to love people, to be sacrificial, to be, to be generous, to be selfless, right? He talks about how we should give things to people. We should turn the other cheek. We should learn to forgive people, right? But all of a sudden, when rapture becomes your ultimate hope, what happens is that your idea of love gets a little thwarted, right? I've heard pastors say this, I will do everything short of sin to get as many people saved as possible, right? Somebody's in trouble. Uh, you know what? Before I save that person, the most important thing right now is to make sure that if Jesus comes back today that you're taken away, right? Like, all of a sudden, your act of love is conversion, not forgiveness, not patience, not care, you know, like, all of us, I mean, I'm not saying it's one or the other, but if you had to choose one, you think your greatest act of love is to make sure that that person gets snatched away when the day of the rapture happens, and everything else takes a back seat. 
And so, you know, back in the day before rapture theology kind of swept into to Christian, American Christianity, you know what mission work was? Mission work was when you went to another place to love on the people who had less than you. Today, what mission work sounds like and looks like is you go to a place and you teach them how they were wrong and that you need to believe in the same things I believe in or else you're going to hell. And when you ask them, like, why aren't you caring? Why aren't you giving them food? Why aren't you doing this? And they're like, oh, because, and I'm sure you guys probably heard this too, like, you know, uh, if, if you knew somebody was going to you know, go to hell, right, or somebody's going to get hit by a car tonight, don't you think the most loving thing is to make sure you teach them that they are wrong and that they need to turn their way, right? Like, the, the definition of love changes, and it becomes all about conversion versus I'm going to give myself up for you and love on you even if it means I have to sacrifice something in my life, right? So the definition of love gets thwarted a little bit. Now, I'm not saying that conversion's bad. I think it's good, you know, but the way we do that is, like, we, we, we feel like there's this, this, we have to push quick salvation before the imminent deadline, like we have a deadline, right? And we're like, okay, um, if Jesus is coming back in five hours, then we gotta make sure that we, we get you to think differently and you pray the prayer that we want you to pray, like we push, our beliefs on other people without thinking, what are their real needs? Like, if rapture happened today, what is the thing that I should do today, you're right? It, it makes us feel like we can't have patience anymore. That kindness could take a back seat if it means I could force somebody to believe in the same things that I believe in. So, we start to redefine love, that's a dangerous thing. And finally, and there's more than this, but I just wanna say, we have apathy towards creation. People who really buy into this rapture thing, we don't really care about how we treat the environment because they're like, you know what, this, this, we're going to be taken away from this, so I don't think I really need to, like, oh, the, fort, the rainforest is going away? Well, it's okay because my home is not here. My home is over there. It's part of escapism, right? So for these three, <laughs> these are three examples of how we, we become irresponsible followers of Jesus if we put our hope in the rapture. And this is why it's so important that we talk about this. And you're like, yeah, but, like, Jesus talked, no, we talked about it. Matthew chapter 24 is not about rapture. Well, but Paul, like, Paul wrote a lot of things. You want to talk about what Paul wrote about something like this? Paul, when he wrote a letter to a church in Philippi, he talks about how escapism sounds good, but my, my priority should be here to stay here as long as I can. This is what he says. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23. I am torn between the two. What he's talking about here is, I've been persecuted, I've been whipped, I've been put into prison. There's been times when I got really sick that I was about to die. And I'm torn between these two options, to just give up and die so I could be with Jesus, or stick around as long as I can and fight for my life so I could take care of you guys. So I'm torn between these two options. I desire to depart and be with Christ. It's so much easier if I just give up on my life right now, which is better by far because I get to be with the one I love, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I mean, it's so much more important for me that I stay here for your sake. Why? Because escapism is not my goal, right? He's not talking about the rapture here. He's talking about death and life, but the idea is the same. The more important thing in my life is not how can I get away so that I could have the best life that I could imagine, in this case, life with Jesus, right? And he says, no, I'm convinced of this. He says, I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Me sacrificing myself for your sake is the mission that Jesus has set in my life. It's so much easier if I just toss that to the side and said, hey, I just wanna be with Jesus, so, you know, woo, right? It's like, 
escapism, right? It's like, it's so much better if I stay here and take care of you guys so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. If I could play some small role in making you realize that being with Jesus is all about, you know, sacrificing yourself and loving the people around you, making your society a better place, bringing more heaven on earth, then you know what? I think this is more important. In other words, Jesus expected the church to love selflessly and sacrificially. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, and he's not talking about rapture theology, but I'll just bring that in here. Rapture theology ultimately is about saying, you know what? I care more about me avoiding suffering than it is to care about the people around me. So if there's suffering, a seven-year tribulation that's gonna happen, take me away, Jesus, right? And he says, no, 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 the church is not about your comfort. The church is about selflessness and sacrifice, just like what Jesus went through. So, well, basically he's saying the antithesis to rapture is, is being a follower of Jesus. So what I'm trying to say here is this, guys. Do we really want to believe in the rapture theory? Because it seems to go contradictory to the things that Jesus taught the church to be. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's do two questions, if you guys have questions. Because I know this stuff is, like, controversial for some. Any questions? Yes, Stan. Yeah, um, oh, in case you didn't hear, he said, would you say that rapture the uh, theory is an emphasis on fear instead of love? I would say yes. There's this one paper I read that said that um, rapture theory started becoming more and more popular after uh, the, the Great Depression, where people started spending more and more money on comfort. And rapture theology, as it grew in popularity, there was this parallel of, of Americans wanting to be more comfortable Right, spending more money, spending more time on a life of comfort, which corresponds to what we want to believe. We want to believe that we're going to be taken out of suffering. And I think at the root of that is fear, the fear of pain, discomfort. Yeah, oh, great, great question, but it's like, you know when like, smart people, when they ask a question, it's actually more of a comment to teach me. I just learned something, so thank you. <laughs> yes, Steve. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he, Jesus talks about some being left behind and some being taken away. Mm -hmm. So what are those referring to if, if it's not the rapture? Yeah, um, so uh, the question, in case you didn't hear, is in the Matthew and Luke passages, Jesus makes a distinction between the people who get taken away and people who get left behind. Who, who are these people that, that Jesus is referring to? What categories is he really talking about? So in the story, he's talking about the question that was asked to Jesus is when is all the, are all these the downfall of the empire stuff going to happen, Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't know. Right? I don't know when it's going to happen. But let me tell you, like in the days of Noah, nobody knew when it was happening. It, was, it just happened. Right? <laughs> right? And Jesus' lesson that comes right after that is the part where he talks about being left behind. He's saying, so make sure that your hands are not attached to the crumbling empire. Right? So if you're like, um, in the Luke version, he actually has other examples he says that if your house is on fire, you don't want to go back inside to grab the things that are inside the house as your house burns down. So the image there is the people who are taken away with the destruction, they're the people who can't let go of the, 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 
the systems that are doing well right now but are inevitably going to crumble, but you put all your eggs in that empire, right? That you, you just fall apart with that. And by the way, when we get into the book of Revelation, we'll talk about this, where um, this empire is falling apart and there's a whole group of people who are watching it burn and they're weeping, right? But um, the people who get snatched away are the people who can't let go of the, the failing system. And the people who got left behind are the people who have detached themselves from it, right? I mean, they participate in it probably. If it's consumerism, they participate in it, but they're okay even apart from it, right? So the people who got left behind are the people who detached themselves from the crumbling empire. People who attach themselves and they can't think of a future without it are the people who got um, left. I'm getting my categories mixed up, but you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what Jesus is talking about. Oh, yeah, for sure. Unless you want to be part of the people who are surrounded by vultures, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Now, great questions. Um, okay, time's up, but if you guys have any more questions, feel free to ask me. Uh, I know this is a really complicated topic. But starting next week, we're going to have something more down to earth. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's uh, close in prayer. <laughs>